independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you. And we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though. So if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take Take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review. All this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. What these certifications do on the one hand are a bit of a pressure release in that they create certain very narrowly defined attributes for consumers who want to purchase something in particular, particularly something better, or in, in many cases, to avoid ingredients or avoid certain substances. It is very different than saying, you know what, we need to transform our food and agricultural system to one based on principles of agroecology and fairness and justice. In this episode, we welcome Errol Schweitzer to the show. He has over 25 years of experience in the food industry, from grill cook, stock clerk, and purchasing manager to VP of grocery, a position he held at Whole Foods for seven years. He's also active in regional food policy, healthy food access, and labor advocacy, is the co-founder and host of the Checkout Podcast, and writes for Forbes, Food Plus Tech Connect, and others. Errol, there's so much more to your background that I want to invite you to share yourself. But first of all, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Really appreciate it. I am so stoked. I, I love your show and I love what you guys are doing. So I am honored to be here. Thank you. That means so much coming from you. So you have decades of experience being a food industry insider, and you were the VP of grocery at Whole Foods for seven years. I know you've also consulted for various big food corporations, but you remain really grounded in your advocacy for justice and worker rights, which this is a generalization, but it's sort of unexpected for someone who's risen to executive power at a large corporation for that long to then turn around and be so unapologetic about calling out the injustices driven by the industry and even the companies that you've worked with. So I'm curious to hear what it was about your background that set in stone this sort of guiding star for you to center worker rights and justice so that you're not seduced into maybe being more quiet to uphold a system that you personally benefited from with your position of power in the industry. Yeah, right on. I mean, for me, like I, I came up through the ranks. I was really fortunate. You know, I hustled, I worked really hard, but 
I had, you know, not only my own privileges, but good timing and great mentors. Like, you know, I found people that spend time nurturing my talents and encouraging me. So I always felt really connected to the folks in the stores or on the ground in facilities. And for me, it was always about feeding the world, feeding the world good food, right? And for me, there was always a aspect of justice to it. And the contradictions came in the fact that we were doing it in a capitalist system, which emphasized the need for profit and productivity and growth. And so what I realized early on in my career is that I was going to have to figure out how to navigate that contradiction, how I was going to personally deal with the fact that not every decision that we made was going to benefit everybody and how I was going to, you know, what role I was going to play in that. And one of the things that I took pride in when I was at Whole Foods, and I left Whole Foods almost six years ago. And when I was there, there was very much a grassroots sort of vibe. Like you can do, you could do a lot of interesting, innovative things, but it was also a company that really seemed to take care of their employees. It wasn't unionized, which was always something that I was uncomfortable with being, you know, a lifelong union advocate and supporter. I grew up in New York City. It's like one out of five people in New York City are in a union. So it was like, that was like, for me, like normal and for Whole Foods to have like a sort of really non-union or even anti-union posture, but they were taking care of their people, like best pay scale in the industry, great benefits. You were were treated really well. There was opportunities for advancement. So I stuck with it. I mean, I accepted that contradiction. And, you know, there was opportunities to build solidarity with, with your coworkers. And that's really like, okay, if we can't have any formal structure, let me do my best to build strong relationships of mutual support with the people that I work with, but also our suppliers, our vendors. But once again, it's capitalism. So the market catches up, competition catches up, the investors got impatient and want higher profits, you know, they want higher productivity, they want this and that, and eventually expenses get cut, which, you know, labor is a variable expense, and it's always the first thing to get reduced. And you're seeing that now across the board in retail, where restructuring layoffs, you know, there's a a brief moment now where they're looking for more employees, but that won't last because they're replacing a lot of folks with automation and algorithms and artificial intelligence. You know, as you mentioned, it is always a little weird having been through the system and working with alongside like entrepreneurs and investors, you know, I'm still very stubborn about my worldview and about when I do see injustice, when I do see imbalance, when I do see exploitation. And let me tell you, the food industry is ground zero for that sort of stuff, Mm -hmm. even though there's so much about it that I love and that I'm loyal to and that keeps me going. You know, I'm still consider myself, you know, a food industry lifer, but I'm really dissatisfied with how the industry has evolved, how many, many, many people are treated, how the ecosystem is treated, how animals are treated, you know, and I think we've tried to improve upon a lot of things, but you know, in a lot of ways, uh, there's still so much work to do. And in a lot of ways, things are worse too. Mm. Well, I was really excited to speak with you because I've been thinking about how the rise in our need for certifications for everything is very much reflective of a loss of community where rather than addressing the root causes and the reason for the loss of trust from this 
fragmented, opaque, complex global supply chain inside of a profit-first hierarchical system, we've turned to policing and commodifying trust instead. And this all just reduces it into certifications that are very limiting in their specific areas of focus. And so when I talked to our mutual friend, Lauren of A Growing Culture, about this train of thought, he said that you're the person I have to speak to about this because of your decades of experience as an industry insider, having witnessed the fraud and shortcomings of certain labels you've worked with. I want to honor, of course, whatever you feel comfortable sharing or not sharing, but what are some examples you can tell us of eco or ethical certifications falling short of people's hopes or expectations for what they mean and guarantee? Yeah, so let me get to the punchline first, that in a, in a market system, certifications are unfortunately one of the only ways to guarantee trust, transparency, authenticity, right? So let me get that. That's sort of the bad news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The analysis that I have is that because we live in a a globalized capitalist system, as the director of Parasite said, you know, we all live in capitalism. And it's something that has evolved, particularly in the last 40 to 50 years, what we would call the neoliberal era, the era of privatization, the reduction of state services, you know, a focus on the racialization of capital and how the division of labor is, is cut, cuts across race and class. But also the, the main thing being that the emphasis on the, the role of the state, the role of government is to encourage and underwrite and, and subsidize private capital, to subsidize big business, right? You know, and one of the quick side notes is, you know, the organic food industry and some of the, the ethical sourcing labels kind of exists almost as a outside of that because there is not as much of the state subsidies and underwriting like you find in big agriculture to the point of the big meat industry, the conventional meat industry is subsidized to the tune of $38 billion a year. The Trump administration underwrote big agriculture, primarily GMO, commodity, monoculture, crop production for animal feed and for processed ingredients to the tune of $65 billion in less than three years. And of course, 99.9% of this went to wealthy white farmers, right? Once again, the racialization of capital. Um, so why certification? So let me get to the point here. Certifications in a free trade system are an established way of communicating trust through that system. You know, And so it is very different than saying our whole food system is backwards. It's upside down. The priorities, the way it's set, who benefits, you know, what the vision of, like I said, completely upside down and backwards. And what these certifications do, on the one hand, are a bit of a pressure release in that they create certain very narrowly defined attributes for consumers who want to purchase something in particular, particularly something better, or in in many cases, to avoid ingredients or avoid certain substances. It is very different than saying, you know what, we need to transform our food and agricultural system to one based on principles of agroecology and fairness and justice. Let's pattern our food system off of how indigenous societies like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy was was structured, matriarchal, highly productive, but not in the sense for productive for profit, but making sure everybody was fed, there was no hunger, the wealth was shared. Right. And you could talk about many different indigenous cultures, you know, in our food system, as, as your 
listeners know is based off of the last thousand years of enclosures and privatization of land, the displacement of women as the folks who took care of the land and and took care of the commons and were healers and herbalists, right? And that's what the, the witch burnings were about. And that evolved into the slave trade, you know, and how folks were stolen from West Africa and Central Africa because of their agronomic knowledge. These were farming civilizations. And so the food system is rooted in this plantation slavery model that evolved alongside and really fed the development of capitalism. You know, cocoa, coffee, sugar, cotton, all these crops were developed through slavery. And if you look at even till today, the fact that big food companies are really off the hook, according to the Supreme Court, if they have forced labor, slavery, or trafficking in their supply chain. So how much has things really changed? Yes, even though there's there's a small sliver of the marketplace, which is maybe organic or, quote, fair trade, right? The vast majority of it is still based on this enclosed, privatized plantation model that has been developed now for hundreds and hundreds of years. And who's benefiting from that? Once again, it's you know, geared towards profit, it's geared towards productivity, it's geared towards commodifying foods. So I know I'm sort of going around about, but I'm trying to contextualize why I say, nonetheless, <laughs> certification yeah. is the best you can do within the system, because there's two options here, right? The first option is to say, consumption, consumer, capitalism, conscious consumerism, it's just, it's a paradigm, it's a fetishization of the commodity, right? But it's not the only way. And so much of the change that we need to pursue in the food system exists outside of what you decide to buy at the checkout counter. It exists in the realm of political advocacy, of organizing for a better food system. It involves the realm of public purchasing, public contracts, and how food can be decommodified yet still feed folks. It exists in the the realm of what we call food sovereignty and developing local and communal networks so that you are able to want, like you said, build this trust and build this community back to build back this authenticity, which a lot of folks are doing. If you look at in Detroit uh, with networks of community gardens, Detroit, you know, black food security network, or in Baltimore, the black church food security network, or folks like, you know, like soul fire farm and this growing network of black indigenous people of color producers uh, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and you know the history of cooperatives as resistance to exploitation, particularly in the Black community, which uh, Monica White has written about in Freedom Farmers. And this is particularly about Fannie Lou Hamer and the production of food. You know, and she said if you could put up a couple hundred jars of gumbo, you know, for the winter, you don't have to worry about the tax man. You don't have to worry about starvation, right? And so this sort of food sovereignty, and it's important that your listeners understand that is the priority. But if you have the access, if you have the ability, if you have the privilege, financial, location, knowledge, you know, all these privileges that folks like us, like myself, that I feel I have, then yeah, you probably should buy better stuff because at least you're supporting some of the folks who are attempting to do things better in a very narrow way as defined by the marketplace. And that's what what each of these certifications do, ethical certifications. And I'll start with, you know, the biggest, most visible, and in some ways the most successful, USDA organic, which is essentially federally regulated. It's a legal term. You can only call something organic if it's certified through the National Organic Program by a third-party 
private certifier. So there are some checks and balances, but organic, when, you know, I was doing organic advocacy in the nineties in order to make it much more of an agroecological standard that there was an aspect of labor advocacy, recycling of, of inputs, a uh, greater focus on soil health. And even though there is a national organic standards board, which does have public participation over the last couple decades, as organic has grown and organic is a 60 plus billion dollar market growing double digits, organic has also been somewhat watered down and compromised primarily through the influence of big business and folks that don't necessarily have the consumer's best interests in mind, you know, large agribusiness. Um, and so some of the concerns with organic include hydroponic is allowed in organic, even though it conflicts with organic's own regulations about building soil health. There's definitely a much more lax attitude towards what they call organic CAFOs, organic concentrated animal feedlot operations, primarily in dairy, where you have these really large scale operations that used to be conventional that managed to get certified over and switch over to organic without really changing too much of what they do very, very, you know, sort of narrow definition of organic. And it's very different than some of the small scale agroecological organic and or even biodynamic producers that are doing things right. And that's been a compromise of growth. And then, you know, there, there was a huge scandal about organic fraud in grain imports. Well, first of all, why are we importing grain? Well, it's because so much of the grain we produce in this country is genetically modified, that much of it gets con uh, organic can be contaminated unless you're taking a lot of precautions, particularly around getting it non-GMO verified, having full supply chain traceability, making sure that you're not planting or pollinating when your neighbor who's, who's planting GMOs is. So these imports, there was a lot of fraud in the imports. On the, one, on the other hand, I need to say that out of all the certifications, organic is still the best and still the most trustworthy, simply because there's so many thousands of producers and manufacturers that are still committed to it. And if you are dissatisfied with organic, the idea is to not walk away from it or reject it, but fight for it. Fight to make it better. Fight for it to make it more agroecological. Fight for it to make, make more authentic. Fight the compromises that are going into it. Because the main thing that organic does is it guarantees to you, and this is something that it, it still does, that you are able to avoid dangerous poisons, dangerous pesticides and herbicides, whether it's the Camba. Glyphosate, which is known carcinogen, glyphosate is also a chelator, an antibiotic, an inflammatory agent, an estrogen active chemical. It's, it's really terrible and should be banned. Mm -hmm. You know, by eating organic, you're able to avoid many, many other herbicides and pesticides, hundreds, hundreds of chemicals. If there is one reason to buy and support organic, it's because you're actually still enabling us to avoid the silent spring that Rachel Carson warned about. Now, that doesn't stop organic from having many shortcomings and contradictions, like I'm saying. Is there a worker justice element to the USDA no. organic? No, that was pulled out in the 90s, uh, from what I recall. So organic farms, there, while there are some organic farms that, you know, there's a few that are, uh, at least one that I know that's unionized. There are others that are good with their workers in terms of living wage and, you know, job security. The focus of labor justice and worker justice needs to happen at the state and federal policy level. It is not something that you can guarantee through organic. In a sense, there are some organic farms that do better. And then frankly, there are some that are just as bad as any conventional farms. And I know this from talking with certifiers and activists and, and farm worker groups saying, well, you know, there's some of these small farms 
they pay just as poorly and they treat their, their farm workers who are primarily migrant or, or, or immigrant or guest worker undocumented. They treat them just as bad as the conventional folks do. So labor justice could only be affected through federal policy, which means making sure that farm workers have the same overtime protections, like which some states are doing. New York is moving towards that. California, Washington State, now even Colorado. This means about this means guaranteeing that farm workers get a living wage, that they're not getting minimum or even sub-minimum wage. This means that there's fair scheduling, that they have all the protections that me and you have from the legacy of the New Deal, the Farm, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, etc., uh, the FLSLA, the Fair Labor Standards Act. That needs to be applicable to farm workers federally, and it's not. And that, to me, is one of the greatest oversights and that we are not that removed from the plantation model. And then the New Deal, the FDR compromised with Southern Democrats. They didn't want to include not only farm workers, but domestic workers who were, while disproportionately people of color, black, were actually still majority white. It was an issue of class and economic power. Now that legacy means that primarily immigrant, undocumented, mostly Latin American workers are excluded from those labor protections that the rest of us take for granted. So it's not something you could fix through organic because it would still mean that the other 95 plus percent of the food that we produce is still grown in this plantation model. And like I said, certain states are making very progressive moves, New York, California, Colorado, Washington state towards resolving this, but it needs to happen federally because you still have major food producing states like, like, in, like Texas for instance, or Oregon, where you still have these really exploitative conditions. Essentially, the whole food system is underwritten by labor exploitation, the exploitation of mostly immigrant workforce who picks, harvests, processes, manufactures our food all the way up through you know, these big manufacturing plants and processing plants that were huge COVID hotspots in the Midwest. And it is something that if you are interested in Fixing the food system, the major focus we should have would be labor and social socioeconomic justice for food system workers. Mm. And what you just said in regards to the limitations of using certifications as a way to address worker justice, I think is really summed up by this quote that you share in Five Actions to Reboot Food Retail by Greg of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, yes. when he said, whatever they call social responsibility in the food industry has been a joke, a fraud. It is absolutely empty and soulless and unreal. It is everything that has not worked and has been done for public relations purposes for the corporations, not the workers, end quote. And just as a quick background, Greg Asbed was a farm worker for a decade and a farm worker organizer for 20 years and is a co-founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, one of the leading farm worker justice organizations in the world who discovered and figured out a way to leverage the marketplace to create enforceable, legally binding contracts that not only protect farm workers from the worst forms of harassment and exploitation, but guarantee them better wages and working conditions. So I just wanted to contextualize because my man Greg knows what he's talking about and has lived it and has seen during COVID how blatant, how blatant the, the exploitation was and just you know how many people suffered, got sick, and even died. And, and like he said, no major retailer raised a finger. No major mm -hmm. food processor stepped up and said, 
oh, wow, this, this is wrong. This is bad. Their whole focus was on productivity and keeping shells full and keeping the plants running. And for me, it was something that made me physically ill and really inspired a lot of the work that I've been doing these last, you know, for the last year in particular, sort of picking up steam to say, whoa, 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 let's stop patting ourselves on the back, people. This is not right. This is very, very bad. This, and if you were to extrapolate out these types of conditions towards what we're expecting to happen with climate change, it does not bode well. This was a test. And Absolutely. the food system failed miserably. And also, if listeners want to learn more about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, they were highlighted in this documentary called Food Chains by our right. previous guest, Sanjay Raw. And that's when I learned about them, and I highly recommend it as well. So yeah, all of this speaks to how there are a lot of limitations and flaws with certifications. But at the same time, given the current capitalistic system that we work in, they still have a role to play. But at the same time, they are a sign that the system itself needs to change as well. And another tangent I want to go on, which goes hand in hand with conscious consumerism, is the amount of food innovation and startups being created in the name of sustainable and ethical food. I know you've helped bring to market success various plant-based or organic or regenerative food brands and products, but these brands that we see are really just a tiny representation of the larger landscape of all the market-driven branded solutions to addressing the industry's crises. And I don't want to paint all startups with a broad stroke because there are brands working to embody justice at all levels and that are centering our collective health. But there is a trend of the initially good intentions of entrepreneurs who set out to address some of the industry's problems being hijacked by the same game of profit and power and domination. So attempting to solve certain problems, but really just repeating the same destructive patterns overall. I would love if you could share some examples of how whether it's the movement of plant-based or regenerative or what have you being sort of derailed in their purpose and what we should learn from that. Yeah. And I still work with a number of food businesses that are attempting to do what you said, and you said it a lot better than I could, how to embody those ethics in a, in a for-profit capitalist business. And I think it's a huge contradiction. I think folks are doing their best with the way the system is set up. There's a lot of folks that really mean what they're saying and want to do right, but there's a lot of challenges. So the first major challenge, is, as you said, is the odds are stacked against them. The scale of the for-profit commodified food system, the fact that it's underwritten by public tax dollars is just so absurd. So if you're producing like organic corn, you're in a competitive situation with GMO corn that's underwritten by tax dollars. And so if you were to think of a true cost accounting, you know, this is a tool that some food activists are using. And there's a new book that Paula Daniels, uh, for instance, helped co-author, co-edit about true cost accounting. 
if you were to pull not only the public subsidies out, but add in the cost of pollution and health issues and runoff and you know water wastage to all this conventional ag, you know, it'd be a lot more expensive than than you as an organic producer. But nonetheless, folks are trying, and that's where a lot of the growth in the food industry is. You know, and a lot of bigger brands are moving towards this as well. And so it's it's once again a mess of contradictions. And so there's a lot of folks who are legit trying to do the right thing. And one of the other concerns and contradictions and and co-optations they have is finance and how you actually can underwrite these kind of businesses that are doing the right thing. Most of the food businesses are underwritten through private capital, either the private equity markets or venture capital or what they call family offices, et cetera. And capital always wants returns. And so if somebody gives you a dollar you're signing paperwork to say, well, within a couple of years, I'm going to turn this dollar into $3, right? And so you have these legal obligations to your investors. Likewise, the investors have legal obligations to their partners, the people who actually put the money into their funds. And so you have to make sure that as as a business, that you're trying to find investors who, A, share your values. And while you think that you're picking up a hitchhiker, that they don't turn into a carjacker, take over your business, change the terms of the investment, and, and steal your company from you, right? And that happens a lot. It's very hard to scale a business with honest money. A lot of the money is fast money. Folks want hockey stick growth. A lot of it's high-risk money. You have these investors who throw money at dozens of companies with the hope that one or two is the next big thing. And there's not enough what they call slow money, slow capital. But once again, this is all within private markets, private capital, right? This is very different than saying, well, what if, you know, as Mariana Mazzucato wrote in in her books, like The Value of Everything, like what if this was publicly funded and there was public benefit from it as well? And Mazzucato is brilliant. People should read her stuff because in her book, The Entrepreneurial State, she talks about how most of the technology that we use, like what we're using now, aka the internet, you know, LCD screens, wireless free internet, etc., was underwritten by the public, right? All that investment, all that risk was initially borne by the taxpayers, yet all the reward has been privatized. All the profit has essentially gone to a few, you know, tech investors, tech founders and entrepreneurs, you know, as well as some some larger institutional investors. So why am I saying this? It's like the financing is a major challenge and some folks are doing okay with it. I I can tell you this, like during COVID-19, I've been working for a number of different companies, you know, some that have employee ownership pools, some that are privately owned, some that are bigger, some that are smaller and raising funds was hellish. It was very difficult. And the terms were very favorable to the investors. And, you know, some companies went insolvent. Luckily, most of the companies I work with survived (laughs) and are still figuring out how to navigate this mess. Uh, But some didn't get an investment and some didn't get the most favorable terms. One of my favorite companies that I work with, we had to sell it, you know, which we're hopefully in the process of because it was so hard to actually raise capital. And that's why when I see, and I, I watch this very carefully, I watch the ag tech investor space and what investors are throwing money at. They're throwing money at these glitzy new technologies like cultivated meat and synthetic biology. You know, it makes me very skeptical because understanding the type of returns that they're asking for in the business model that would need to be viable for those companies to be profitable after all that money is put into it makes me question how sustainable they actually will be, as opposed mm-hmm. to companies that are 
having an attempt <laughs> to you know not only stay organic but maybe pay their employees well or to make sure that their supply chains are ethical that everything is transparent that all the stakeholders that they know of within their supply chain that they can trace back to are being treated well you know and there's there are a number of great companies like that like i mentioned eco exchange or alter eco in the chocolate category Organic Valley, it's a farmer-owned organic dairy co-op that does over a billion dollars in sales every year. The farmers own it, right? You know, they've got very loyal employees that have been with the company for a while. If you see Organic Valley at the grocery store, you should buy it. It's one of the best companies in the world. It's not perfect. And they're still having to function in this market system. But they figured out a way to do it, keep farmers on the land, but also greatly expand the access and availability of organic foods, which, which is a great thing. So I know I sort of went to two of the, only two of those aspects of, of ethical brands. And it's really important that, you know, this is hard, but folks want to fetishize conscious consumers and say, hey, this is the answer. And as somebody who's probably sold more ethical products than any of your listeners or almost anybody in this country, I'll say that yeah, it's great. There's some great st- things about it. It's probably made as much progress in certain aspects of the food system, but it's not the be-all, end-all. There's so much more to food activism and food policy work and public procurement that can also shift the dialogue around the food system. I mean, rematriation of indigenous lands. You know, there's only a handful of Native American-owned brands. I've worked with Tonka Bar now for years, some of my favorite people. But if we were to talk about rematriating indigenous lands and allowing some of these lands that are either privately or publicly held now to be given back to their original stewards for food sovereignty and for them to uh, start using indigenous land management techniques once again, I think that would have a much bigger impact on the food system than dozens of new entrepreneurs trying to launch you know, some cool, kitschy, innovative products, which may or may not ever be successful. Right. If we were to transform public procurement and say, let's look at all government agencies, Department of Education, Department of Justice, USDA, hell, even Department of Defense, we were to transform all their public procurement to what we call good food purchasing program standards that are essentially agroecological. That would have a tremendous impact on supply chains in terms of ethical sourcing, use of organic, moving away from pesticides and GMOs, because those public purchasing contracts are legal documents. You have to abide by the standards in those documents in order to sell to those customers, which in this case would be public agencies, et cetera. You know, and I, I finally, just tying that back into one other aspect, the universalization of school lunch could have such a huge impact on, on a good food purchasing system. If we were to not only say school lunch should be free forever, but it should also be produced with good food good organic food, good wholesome food, whole food ingredients, local farmers, folks that are in the supply chain that are getting paid well, that are able to have middle-class jobs and you know maybe save for a home and send their kids to college by producing and growing food that is used for school lunch. And, you know, maybe you could call me a bit optimistic, but I probably know more about supply chains than anybody on this call. And it's possible. You can do it. It's a matter of willpower. <laughs> it's a matter of organizing. And it's a matter of, well, power and who's making these decisions. And that's mm-hmm. why it's like, I'm not against folks being food entrepreneurs and food innovators in the private market, in the private sector. And there's a lot of folks that I love doing it, but I do encourage them, cajole them, and push folks to say, it's not everything, though. There are other things that we need to be doing. And in fact, 
I'm of the opinion that we need to greatly reduce our dependence on the marketplace, on, on private markets in the food sector in particular. We need to greatly expand the public sector. We need to expand, and I know your, your listenership is familiar with the concept of the commons, you know, common pool resources to create a commons around food, that food could be a right, food could be an entitlement, that everybody should have access to it, and that you need infrastructure to do such things. You need logistics and supply chain, you need personnel, you need folks who are working in the system to do all these things. It doesn't all have to be through the private marketplace. Hmm. So much in what you just said. And relatedly, you've noted before that we're not having holistic enough of conversations about the food system and who's making decisions and who's benefiting. And instead, we're fetishizing particular techniques and practices, which are the things going back to our earlier discussion that can be certified, whether it's regenerative, organic, or otherwise GMO, monoculture, cell tech, and food tech. And I almost wonder if like of course these practices of these practices and techniques are important but i wonder if this could be an inevitable byproduct of first democratizing and decentralizing power in the system itself so whereas fixating on the practices doesn't address the greater power injustices maybe addressing the power injustices first can then translate into changes in those practices as a result of course in fact, I would say that if you were to democratize the decision-making and the power dynamics, you would have a completely different set of technologies and, and trends that would be prioritized. This One of the things that I find very interesting and, and a contradiction is that even though you know farm labor groups, farm worker organizations have a better, better working conditions under organic farms, there's not a huge push from farm worker groups for organic. But if you peel back the onion a bit there and you look at what they're actually saying, most of them have a broad agroecological analysis of not just organic, which is a particular set of techniques underneath you know, a certification that a lot of farm worker organizations understand not just how food is grown, but like the financing, the decision making, who's benefiting from it. And so it's the same thing with regenerative agriculture, which is something that I've done a lot of work to try to introduce and scale, but also articulate. And there's a lot of shortcomings to it, particularly who's at the table, who's making decisions, who is producing, you know, who is advocating for it. Regenerative has huge potential to mitigate climate change and create healthier, nutrient-dense food, but so much of the regenerative discussions and, and policies and certification organizational frameworks exclude indigenous people. It excludes farm worker groups. It excludes a diverse cohort that is essentially who's working in the food system. <laughs> you know, mm. go to any Amazon fulfillment center, go to any Target, go to any Walmart, you know, go to any, any large scale farm or food processor who is actually doing the work in the food system. It's primarily working class people of color and, you know, lately disproportionately women as well. But that's not who's making these decisions. And that's primarily with the food tech uh, issue, whether it's cultivated meat or it's the new waves of genetically modified organisms like synthetic biology and, you know, CRISPR, Cas9, Talon crops that, you know, they're going to be different than the, the first wave of GMOs, which was all about creating crops that were herbicide tolerant or, pest or, or, or were built in with pesticides. It was all about the pesticide treadmill. Not the next wave. The next wave are going to have different attributes. 
Uh, but some of them are still going to be based in processors. Um, and you know, what's good for processors like non-browning apples and non-browning potatoes. What I'm saying is it's not the technology itself. It's who's driving it. Who, who's getting the priorities, finance, capital, it's investors, it's entrepreneurs, it's, it's scientists who are frankly brilliant researchers. They know a ton about biology. They know a ton about chemistry, but they don't know shit about the food system. They don't know shit about the food industry. And they're coming up with these like crazy ideas and they're pitching them to investors who are looking at, you know, a dozen of these ideas and maybe one of them blows up and is the next big thing, right? That's what I was saying. The whole point is that these types of decisions and prioritization would be different if you had different folks at the table, if you had folks who are rooted in food justice and food access. And then frankly, if we're talking about what if this was put in the public interest, in the public domain, that it wasn't all about intellectual property rights and patenting the building blocks of life. You know, all these GMOs, they're patented. They're intellectual property. You can't save GMO corn seed and plant it next year. You'll go to jail. You have to buy it every year, right? That's what happened with Percy Schmeiser. And they just made a movie about this Canadian farmer whose crop was uh, unfortunately contaminated by GMOs. And, you know, they took him to court for it, right? And so all these new GMOs patenting life, you know, will they be in the public domain? And if they are, you know, who's benefiting from them? And that, that's the, my point about the technology. It's not the technology itself. It's what we call the political economy. Who's behind it? Who's investing? And if, like, I really feel if the rights holders and decision makers actually reflected the food system, the whole prioritization of food trends would be different. And I think would be a lot more contextualized with how people live, what their challenges are, and, you know, what they're trying to get out of it, as opposed to fetishizing the next big thing, just because it has some value in the marketplace. It's, it's a signal to an investor to throw money at, right? And so there's still good that you could pull out of these things, right? I think there's a lot of good you could pull out of regenerative. I'm curious to see what happens with some of the food tech, cultivated meat, etc. I personally think anything is better than CAFOs, but whether or not the investors and the entrepreneurs and then the regulators are, are clued into the externalities or the ownership models of these types of, of uh, products is still a big question mark. It's not been decided. And frankly, I have my doubts with, with how the money is played in, in that so I'm really interested in what folks like Heal Food Alliance, H-E-A-L, Heal Food Alliance is saying. I'm really interested in what the worker-driven social responsibility network is talking about. I love what Real Meals uh, Coalition has been doing around reforming cafeteria procurement at college campuses. For me, like that, those type of organizing models that are rooted and led by people of color, working class people in the food system in these communities, you know, looking at what these folks have done around Amazon, whether it's Warehouse Workers for Justice or the Awood Center, you know, and how there is this expanding campaign around making sure that Amazon pays people well and is unionized, like the Teamsters Union, the biggest union in the country, 1.3 million members is saying, you know what, we're going to make it our priority to unionize Amazon. I mean, to me, that's one of the best signs of the food sector that I've heard in a long time, because Teamster workers make better money they have better livelihoods. They have better working conditions because of their union contracts. They make sometimes two or three times as much as an Amazon worker doing the same type of work because of that union contract. That's what I'm saying. Like Folks like that need to be at the table. Folks who are involved at that level of justice, let's look to the leadership at the grassroots. You know, I think the best news of this week of this, this woman 
in Buffalo, New York, you know, was elected mayor. And, you know, she was a teen mom at 14. She had twins by the time she was 19. She put herself through nursing school. She's a registered nurse. Let me tell you, I was pre-med. I was a biology major. That shit is hard. And she was not only a nurse, she became an organizer and a leader in her union. And then she turned around and started organizing a land trust to protect her community against gentrification. This woman is a superhero. <laughs> like she, she I've elected her mayor of everything. And she came from behind and beat like a three-term incumbent, you know, power broker. I mean, this is the leadership that we should be looking to and supporting and underwriting and contextualizing what we're talking about within the food system and not necessarily putting these particular techniques as, hey, you know, regenerative is going to save the world. Yeah, it's going to fix certain things. Cell-cultured meat is going to save the world. Yeah, maybe it's better than CAFOs, but we still have questions. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's about the political economy and it's about prioritizing justice and equity. Right. And I think it is important to keep remaining critical of food tech in general, because if we understand power injustice to be at the heart of the problems inside of the food system or being driven by the food system, then essentially food tech drives the centralization of power by things like patents, for example, that perpetuate issues of access because it makes them less democratized and more controlled by a few major powers within the field. So I think it is very important to remain critical of them in general, regardless of the latest thing that is being hyped up as the solution to XYZ. And something that really stood out to me is that in at least three of the past interviews that you did that I listened to, the hosts prefaced those episodes by telling their audience, Errol's going to say things that you're not going to like to hear, that you're (laughs) going to disagree with. And first of all, I never go into a conversation expecting to agree with everything that's being said. And I actually enjoy having dialogues that really challenge my preconceptions and that help me to expand my perspectives and knowledge even more. But I'm curious to hear if you have any inklings as to why past interviewers have had to share this same warning to their audiences about you or what it was about your message that they might have found challenging or uncomfortable either personally or for their audience. Yeah, it's so weird because like it happened to me and you're right that these interviewers who I liked and they reached out to me to solicit me for their (laughs) show. It's like, I'm not going around shopping around saying, hey, somebody interview me. It's just, no, they're like, hey, you're this oddball who, you know, spent all these years in Whole Foods and has worked, you know, throughout the food industry yet. You have this really weird perspective. I think you'd be fun to interview. And oh, by the way, my uh, audience is like fragile and and really (laughs) sensitive and doesn't like being challenged or hearing things that may like shatter their worldview. So yeah, it's always so weird. And I think it just speaks to the fact that there's a lot of closed-mindedness. There, there's a lot of vested interests. There's a lot of sensitivity about this. You know, and folks need to get pushed, that they're, they're not willing to do it on their own. And that a lot of what I feel my role is, that I have certain privileges and a platform to do, is to shine a light and is to elevate folks who are not necessarily in the spotlight it's to make sure that I'm doing everything to push these issues in these circles that I inhabit, you know, and I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I inhabit them. And then, you know, I, I personally think like younger people in the food system, and I, I'm in my mid 40s, I'm Gen X, you know, and I came up through punk rock and hip hop. And, you know, we had some we had some economic issues, we had some hard times, but it's nothing like what folks have to deal with these days with folks who are in their 30s, and then 20s, or my kids who are in their teens, you know, in the world they're coming up into, and it just, it, it breaks my heart, like how difficult things are, how out of reach 
a college education is, how out of reach home ownership is. When we lucked out, we managed to buy our home almost a decade ago and barely scraped by. I couldn't imagine doing that now. You know, how out of reach a decent job is for the vast majority of people. The fact that we're still fighting over this fight for 15 bullshit. And I say bullshit because $15 was in 2010. And now, I mean, really, it's probably closer to 18. But if you tracked it with productivity, it was tw- it'd be 25. If you tracked it with Wall Street bonuses, it's like 45 bucks, right? The fact that we're having to have these basic struggles about livelihoods, and you know, why don't folks want to have families? It's like folks don't can't settle down. It's like look at the stress. Look at college debt. Finally, we have a Democratic president. He's doing shit about college debt. It's crazy. <laughs> And, you know, the fact that, like, we are getting somewhere with food access, we've had victories here. They expanded SNAP. And you know what? The grocery industry went and patted itself on its back for not resisting that because it benefited from SNAP. What are people doing when you increase their SNAP benefits? They buy food. (laughs) Who benefits from that? The grocery industry, right? SNAP is one of the biggest public entitlement programs in the world, which is why I think, we once again, we need to expand, universalize forever free school lunch if you want to fix the food system to do it through these types of programs. And so when I talk about this with folks in the food industry is they're used to hearing the same old shit. So much of the insider food media is just, you know, it's just circular. It's a tautology. It's a circular logic. This is good because it's good. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, almost paid advertisements. And, you know, I, thankfully there's a number of other folks and I'm trying to join their ranks who are thinking about food more critically But also, for me, it's very important to talk about the processes and ways that you can actually implement change. Like a friend of mine always used to say that I was sort of a visionary, but I was always very pragmatic. For me, I'm like very practical. It's like not the what. It's not this like distant ideal. It's how you get there. It's building the road as you travel. It's making the road as you walk. Like there's a great community organizing group in Brooklyn and Detroit called Make the Road by Walking. And I think that's a great life philosophy, too. It's like if you have a vision of what you think you can achieve or what you want to do, take it step by step. Do it. Build it as, as you go. Don't say that, oh, when we get there, things are going to be paradise. Because we know how utopias end up. Every utopia has always been a sham. It's been a grift. And it's usually failed miserably and violently. What we're saying is we need to make these decisions. We need to make these changes. We need to build, a, build it in the form of accompaniment, like what Bishop Oscar Romero tried to do in El Salvador, or Staunton Lind has talked about in Youngstown, accompanying with folks that you're working alongside who could benefit from these changes, not leading them, not being the vanguard and the messiah or the prophet. No, that's all bullshit. We know where that goes. Read your history. <laughs> let's do it together and let's let's do it collaboratively, democratically. You know, and that's sometimes hard for people to hear because they've, you know, they've they're set in their ways and, you know. Thankfully, like I said, I, I've got a lot of friends who are encouraging this and are also thinking more critically. And I'm hoping to see, particularly among younger food activists or younger folks in the food industry, who I don't feel have as much to gain from the current system. That, you know, it, you know, if there's one thing that I could say, if your audience could do, unionize your workplace. Start there. Start with organizing, creating solidarity and mutual aid and fellowship among your fellow workers. That was something for me that was always out of reach. It was so hard to do that in the systems that I came up with. And like I said, I was lucky. I worked for a company for a while, really cared and really did try to overcompensate for that, but it wasn't enough. And look where it's gone now. It's different, very different. It's Amazon, right? So if there's one thing that you can start with, start with your workplace. And if your workplace isn't viable or you're a freelancer or 
There's other reasons. Start with your community. Get active in your community. Where, you know, does your city have a food policy board or a food policy council? You know, is there a school board, a PTA? Is there something that you could start? Don't wait for the next presidential election, you know, and hope that, you know, you, you get some messianic figure that will come and fix everything, snap their fingers, because, you know, it's going to be messy. Start locally as much as you can and start creating those systems of, of equality and justice and diversity and access within your network, within your sphere, within your community. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I love a growing culture. I I feel privileged to be friends with Lauren Cardelli and his team. It speaks to me in that, you know, to your second question, one of the things that really inspired me early on was reading about and learning about the the Zapatista rebellion. It was something that I heard about as it was happening. I I was in an urban studies course at Queens College CUNY back in 1994. Yes, I'm dating myself. I was in college in 1994. And that was when the Zapatista uprising was happened. And it was very much about land and food and autonomy. And from this really amazing social justice angle that spoke to indigenous communities, but also really rooted in economic justice and fair trade and you know fair trading relationships. Um, and so for me, like, and, you know, I know uh, AGC, you know, is really into that as well. And for me, it's something that, oh, man, we're talking about 26, 27 years has inspired me and that I still try to keep up with. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I just think there's, there's, there's work to be done. For me, it's like I, I look in the food industry, I look outside my, my window and my community, and it's like we, we have so much work to do. We have to fix these things. You know, Things are set up to benefit a particular set of actors the system is rigged in so many ways. It was built this way. And, you know, if you could dedicate your life, yet still figure out how to make a livelihood towards justice. You know, for me, it's, like I said, tikkun olam, you know, feels for me like much more culturally appropriate as a diasporic Jew, like diasporic Jews believe in something called dokait, which is hereness. You make your home where you are, not somewhere else, not some promised land, etc. Right. And for me, that like sort of justice and, uh, and struggle and equity is something to try to perform in your daily life and, and work towards as much as possible. And if you have the privilege and option, or you have the necessity, for many people, it is a necessity to struggle. You know, for me, that is, that is something that I figured out how to do sometimes in a market context when I was working, you know, in grocery and, you know, creating great products and creating great supply chains. And now as much of my focus is on not only supporting the businesses I work with, but also Trying to trying to really work towards labor and social justice and racial justice. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? It's it's a tough thing, and hope is something that I always feel like tomorrow could be better than today. It's like Wu Tang Clan, you know, a better tomorrow. They've been saying that since since you know Cream, you know, since uh, Wu Tang Forever, right? 
And yes, but it's also, you have to have more than hope. You have to have motivation. And for me, like I said, it's, it's about knowing there's work to be done and figuring out what you can do to impact that work. And I think to be very careful about hope, that if you have it and you can share it and you can project it, you know, that's great, but don't lose it. And I think one way to not lose hope is to stay disciplined and focused and to create a practice and ultimately a praxis around uh, social justice work and, and change, positive change. So that's the way I see that. Thank you. Well, we are coming to a close, but to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Errol's work, you can follow him on Instagram at grocery.nerd and at the checkout radio, and also on Twitter at grocery underscore nerd and checkout radio. All of this will be linked, as always, in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Errol, thank you so much for your time and generosity in sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep loving, keep fighting. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered show which you can support and co-create with us starting from just $2 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. We don't have any corporate sponsors nor a marketing agency behind us, so if you enjoyed the episode and can help share it with your friends or write a review in the podcast app, that would be so greatly appreciated. Today's musical offering is Karma, written and performed by Sarah Kinsley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Tammy Gunn, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support, and I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>